Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin Campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Kaspard and Holden Turner. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of students, staff, and community members. Here's part one in which we chat with Matt Gamosh. He's the managing director of renewables at Competitive Energy Services. We discuss regulatory changes and how those have been crucial to sparking additional solar project development at Bowdoin and in Maine. We'll talk about the college's various solar initiatives with a particular focus on the recently approved array at the former Navy Air Base. And we'll also provide a little bit more background about the consortium of Maine organizations working with CES to secure additional solar projects, which the college is also part of, among other topics. So Matt, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about Competitive Energy Services and its relationship with Bowdoin? Sure. Yeah. Uh, CES, Competitive Energy Services, we're an energy consulting and advisory firm located uh, right in downtown Portland, Maine. Um, We've been in business uh, since right around 2000 um, with the advent of deregulation in energy markets. FYI, energy market deregulation allows for providers other than the public utility to enter the market, so it creates opportunities for consumers to shop for services and rates that best suit their needs. Deregulation can apply to just gas or electricity or both, and today not all states have fully deregulated markets. Uh, And Bowdoin was among our earlier clients, so Bowdoin has been a client of CES since 2005, I believe. So Bowdoin has been one of those consumers shopping for energy services and has worked with CES for guidance in that process. Uh, and um, has been with us since, um, so, so 15 years now. And over that time, we've worked with Bowdoin on a variety of energy consulting projects, um, really any and all things energy that, that Bowdoin has done or has been doing over the past 15 years. We've um, at least been aware of, if not directly involved in. Um, and that's typically the relationship we have with, with many of our, our consulting clients is uh, sort of treating ourselves as a member of uh, their energy staff and, and helping to uh, work on any type of project. And that includes some of the, the previous solar work that Bowdoin has done in the past, uh, as well as Bowdoin's uh, original 2008 um, greenhouse gas and, and climate action plan, um, and, and more recently uh, working on Bowdoin's uh, sustainability initiatives uh, to see that plan through, uh, achieve carbon neutrality, and then uh, now looking towards the future and, and the next wave of, of commitments that Bowdoin's going to make. So back in 2005 and 2008 with the, with the first, I forget what you call it, plan, what were the what was the energy landscape at Bowdoin like, and what were those projects like compared to what projects you're undertaking now? Yeah, um, well, uh, I I can tell you what I know. At that point, I was still uh, in high school, <laughs> so so I wasn't working at CES then. But I do know that in looking back through Bowdoin's energy history, um, Bowdoin used to use uh, quite a bit more oil. Uh, oil was a, a primary heat source for the campus. Uh, before natural gas was uh, more widely available in the Brunswick area. Yeah. Um, so that was 
actually, a, you know, big first step for Bowdoin in reducing its carbon footprint was uh, transitioning from oil to gas as its primary source of heat. Uh, and then, um, you know, even at that point, campus, I think, was using, uh, despite growth in the last um, few years or really the last decade, campus was using a lot more electricity than, uh, than it is now. And, and a lot of that is due to the um, uh, lighting technology and, and the transition to LEDs that's occurred uh, in the last, I think, I can't remember when Bowdoin began that initiative, but really in the last decade, Bowdoin's uh, really cut its electricity consumption pretty substantially thanks to LEDs. And the switching from oil to natural gas, you're referring to the, the college's heating plant, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. So the college has a, a central heating plant um, that's responsible for heating uh, the vast majority of campus. Um, and and you, the campus gains a lot of efficiencies that way by, by using sort of a district heating approach, heating generating that heat in one location and distributing that, that steam throughout campus to heat buildings. Um, and that heat plant has been something that CES has worked with Bowdoin to, to analyze its efficiency and um, follow along its operations uh, really since the, the beginning of our relationship in 2005. I know as a student walking by the heating plant, sometimes it's um, in the summer times or in the spring and fall, it's, it's hard to remember that it's there, but in the winter, it's very obvious because there's a wave of heat coming out of it all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, definitely somewhat unique among campuses. Uh, you know, many campuses in their design have their heating plants uh, on the edge of campus and not so centrally located. And, and for better or for worse, the way Bowdoin has developed uh, the heating plants right there in the middle of campus, which, you know, in, in some ways I think is a nice reminder to folks that, you know, this is where the energy that we're all consuming comes from and, and it has to be generated somewhere. Um, but it is, uh, ha has caused some headaches in the past because it, it's centrally located and, and especially when previously there had to be a number of oil trucks coming in to, to fill tanks there. I, I know that would cause some headaches because they'd be right there in the center of campus. So kind of transitioning to our main focus today, um, could you give us a little bit of background about the solar project um, that's underway now on the former Navy base? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so the, the project that's underway now at the former base is one that uh, uh, we're all pretty excited about. It'll be um, uh, really five times the size of Bowdoin's existing solar between the existing Tesla and Solar City project, and now Tesla, formerly Solar City, uh, five times the generating capacity uh, of that project. And um, actually uh, a project that was only recently enabled through uh, some changes in Maine's legislation and uh, that have finally allowed campus to, to use that property in a way that we really couldn't in the past. And, and to, to go into some detail or, or uh, I guess, you know, how that's happened, um, Soul Systems is going to be the owner operator in this case, and Bowdoin uh, is going to buy all of the utility bill credits, uh, as well as the renewable energy credits, the, the carbon benefits. Uh, generated by the array 
at the former base for 20 years. And so that, that structure is the same as the, the, the structure is the same between both all 33 projects that are um, part of this consortium, as well as the, the project that Bowdoin is pursuing separately at the former Naval Air Base property. Okay, so we've got three different projects here, one that's already built and one that's going to be built on the former Naval Air Station. And then we also have a consortium of solar projects that Bowdoin has entered into. We asked Matt, what does this all mean for Bowdoin's climate action goals? In 2018, uh, Bowdoin declared carbon neutrality, and, and Bowdoin did so through a combination of, uh, of actions, uh, but a big portion of that claim was through wrecks that Bowdoin purchased. Uh, these were uh, Green E verified uh, wrecks that were bought from, uh, yeah, Texas-based wind farms, as well as um, carbon offsets generated by a methane recapture facility at a landfill in, in Massachusetts. The carbon offsets were used to address Bowdoin's uh, scope one or, or combustion-related emissions, really, uh, all the emissions related primarily to Bowdoin's on-site heating needs, uh, all that natural gas and uh, now you know small amounts of liquid fuels that are burned to heat campus. Uh, and then the wrecks from, from the Texas wind farm were used to address Bowdoin's scope two related emissions, which are emissions generated by the electricity that Bowdoin consumes here in Maine. So that purchase was used to, to address those emissions that we really didn't have a way of addressing through on-campus action or through any uh, at least any financially viable project that we could identify in New England. But, but now, Bowdoin's going to be able to significantly reduce and, and in the next few years, hopefully eliminate the need to buy any wrecks from anywhere outside of New England or, or really any wrecks outside of uh, these transactions that we're discussing here in combination with the Farmington Solar Project, uh, which I know was was part of that announcement in 2018. That project is not yet operational. It's a, a pretty massive solar array. I believe it is still planned to be the largest solar array built in Maine um, at 75 megawatts. That array is one that Bowdoin announced a contract with back in 2018. That contract uses a very different mechanism than these net energy billing contracts that, that are being used at the former base and through this consortium. But, but at a high level between the, the Farmington Solar Array, the project at the former Naval Air Base, and the uh, consortium, uh, Bowdoin will be able to uh, address all of its electricity through main-based renewable sources, which is pretty incredible um, to, to see that shift and, and see it happen fairly quickly here. And that's always been one of Bowdoin's goals is to, you know, re reduce its, its electricity related emissions through main based renewables. And uh, there were a number of limitations that made that hard to do uh, or exorbitantly expensive in the past. And now Bowdoin's finding a way to do that uh, in ways that are 
uh, not only cost neutral, but but in some cases are, are going to uh, hopefully result in um, some financial savings for the college as well. Yeah, this has me like so jazzed to to see that. I think it's kind of interesting to me because I feel like we talk a lot about like local food or like local plants or whatever. And I it's kind of interesting to see a similar sort of trying to keep things local concept applied to energy. Um, so it's so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I, <laughs> I, I'm very excited about it. I mean, it's, it's something that really has only become a possibility in the last couple years. I think uh, back in 2008 with Bowdoin's original plan, Bowdoin was, was set a, a goal that felt like a reach type of goal to install one, one megawatt, 1,000 kilowatts of solar on campus. And Bowdoin achieved that through the um, Solar City now Tesla array. But in that case, the array was still only a very small percentage of Bowdoin's campus electricity. And Bowdoin uh, didn't get to own the renewable energy credits, the RECs, and therefore couldn't really claim any of the carbon benefits associated with that array. It was, it was a great move, and it was the largest array in the state of Maine at the time. But uh, so, I, so I don't want to diminish it, but it's, it's definitely uh, going to be totally overshadowed here by this next wave of renewable commitments between Farmington, the former Naval Air Base project, and the consortium, uh, which are all Maine-based, uh, should be creating uh, jobs here in Maine, uh, environmental benefits here in Maine, uh, and economic benefits here in Maine, which uh, are are great things to see, and and uh, you know I know definitely really important part of Bowdoin's overall climate action plan. The uh, back back in June of 2019, um, one of the key policies that the uh, new at the time new uh, uh, Governor Mills and the Mills administration um, pushed was a net energy billing policy change, and the legislature passed that in June of 2019. And uh, net energy billing is a policy through which um, a, a generator, a qualifying generator, um, which is usually a small scale renewable generator, uh, can generate electricity. That electricity can uh, flow out onto the local utility grid. In this case, that's Central Maine Power's grid. Uh, and in exchange for that electricity being put onto its utility grid, uh, the utility is required to issue a utility bill credit. And those credits are only good if you can use them on a utility bill. And so in the past, uh, Maine's policy for net energy billing has been uh, very limited, very small system. Uh, there was a cap on, on how large a system you could have that would qualify. That cap was at 660 kilowatts. Uh, this legislation in June of 2019 expanded that cap to uh, five megawatts, uh, which is uh, 5,000 kilowatts. So, so uh, much larger systems can now qualify uh, under net energy billing. Uh, and in addition, that policy change uh, changed the way that those kilowatt hours generated by that renewable system are credited. So that utility bill credit uh, is now worth quite a bit more to most customers than it was previously uh, due to the way um, that the regulation is structured. 
And, and that has really enabled Bowdoin to use the land that Bowdoin owns at the former Naval Air Base uh, to host a system uh, and use this program so that the system doesn't have to uh, run a line all the way back to campus and feed its electricity directly to campus and meet needs there. That, that's actually how the uh, former Solar City, now Tesla project at the Naval Air Base operates. There's a, a line um, um, that runs back to Bowdoin's main campus and interconnects directly with Bowdoin's campus. And whenever that array, that solar array is generating electricity, that electricity is flowing directly to meet needs on Bowdoin's campus. And it was sized quite a bit smaller because uh, we wanted to make sure that in the, the case that that array generates electricity in excess of Bowdoin's needs, uh, that that electricity would qualify under the old net energy billing program and that 660 kilowatt cap. Uh, but now that we've got this new expanded program, it allows us to not have to build a very costly and expensive line back to campus. Instead, we can interconnect directly with central main power uh, right there at the Naval Air Base, and then Bowdoin can receive a utility bill credit on its utility bills. Awesome. So Bowdoin through CES is really taking advantage of this new legislation to just up its capacity a ton. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's something that for a long time, uh, you know, Bowdoin was eager to do more renewables, and there, there was a lot of limitation imposed uh, under the LePage administration on, on how you could do uh, renewable projects. And, and Bowdoin was looking at many of its peer institutions in, uh, in Massachusetts or in Rhode Island or uh, Connecticut or New York who had much more expansive net metering or net energy billing policies and could do much larger solar arrays under that policy. And, and uh, really, as soon as this legislation was passed, Bowdoin was pretty, you know, along with CES, we, we were pretty able to uh, position Bowdoin in a, in a place where we could quickly move and take advantage of it because it was something that we had been waiting on for a while. You mentioned that the capacity like five times more. I'm just sort of curious, is that just because the um, array is a lot bigger? Is it just like improvements in technology? Can you talk about where that capacity increase comes from? So the capacity increase is, you know, first off directly related to the fact that we're now allowed to uh, interconnect a much larger renewable project and qualify under this net energy billing program. Uh, so with that expansion from 660 kilowatts up to 5,000 kilowatts, five megawatts, that, that's been the key reason why we've um, pursued a much larger array at the Naval Air Base. But, but in addition, it'll be interesting, once the array is built, you'll notice it, it actually, the, the um, footprint that it takes up uh, on, the, on the property is it's larger than the existing system, but, but not by five times. And that's really due to the improvement in technology. Panels are, solar panels are much denser now than they were uh, when Bowdoin installed that system back in 2014. And 
it's really pretty incredible. I mean, that's that's five, six years time. Uh, and you'll see once this array is built and operational that despite being five, having five times the generating capacity of the existing system, it's probably only three times the footprint. And I'm <laughs> sort of ballparking those numbers. That's really great that you're able to both take advantage of the policy and the technology. Have you seen other parts of your work, other areas and projects that you're working on also impacted by these changes? Yeah, really um, the, the changes to Maine's net energy billing law, as well as the expansion of the renewable portfolio standard, um, which, which is, is requiring Maine to uh, any electricity served to, to end users of electricity throughout Maine uh, has to come from an increasingly high percentage of renewable resources. Uh, the combination of those two policies primarily have led to an explosion of particularly uh, small-scale solar projects. And Bowdoin is at the forefront of that, but we've been working uh, with uh, quite, quite a few clients of ours located in the state of Maine who just like Bowdoin have been uh, waiting for an opportunity to participate in renewables in a way that both leads to uh, environmental benefits but by participating in, and fostering a new renewable project, but also uh, economic benefits uh, based on this new policy. And, and so uh, we at CES have been, have been quite busy since that June 2019 policy rolled out. And uh, uh, we have, uh, besides Bowdoin, um, I think uh, dozens of similar types of projects that, that we're working on, um, including a, a slate of uh, 33 projects through a consortium that, that Bowdoin's actually a part of. And I don't want to <laughs> confuse, I know we're, we're focused on the, the project at the uh, former Naval Air Base right now, but um, that consortium project uh, or consortium that Bowdoin has participated in uh, is going to be a, another um, piece to Bowdoin's sort of renewable puzzle. And uh, Bowdoin's going to be uh, benefiting from a very small slice of uh, 33 different projects, along with a number of other consortium partners, uh, including the City of Portland, uh, the University of Maine, and L.L. Bean. Can you talk a little bit more about the consortium? I know that Kusha has kind of like thrown around the term. Is that just a way to sort of like consolidate requests for proposals? It's it it's definitely an interesting concept. So when back in June of 2019, about the same time we started talking to Bowdoin about a uh, array for uh, the naval air base uh, or former naval air base, we were also talking to a number of clients and customers of ours who did not have land on their property or you know, an adequate rooftop to, to host a solar system, but they still wanted to participate. And the really nice thing about this net energy billing policy is that um, as long as you have a utility bill, uh, you can receive these utility bill credits generated by a, a qualifying renewable project. And, or, or as, as part of receiving those credits and receiving associated savings on your utility bills, you also can receive the environmental benefits, the, the RECs. And so we had a number of customers who, who wanted to do this, um, but unlike Bowdoin, didn't have a property or a, a place where they could host the system. Uh, so 
we figured that the best opportunity for everyone was to uh, put everyone together in a consortium, and there are 25 different members of that consortium. That group uh, went out uh, with a request for proposals, and really the, the goal of that uh, request was to solicit not only uh, the most competitive pricing, uh, but also to uh, attract everyone and anyone in the market who had a project that was at some stage of development. And, and that way we could identify those projects that were furthest along in development. So those um, offsite renewable projects located anywhere in the central main power utility territory uh, that maybe had already negotiated or bought a, a, um, a parcel of lands uh, or had already begun discussions uh, on permitting and uh, interconnection with the utility and, and by uh, using that sort of combined buying power of, of Bowdoin with a number of others, um, both public and private entities, uh, we were able to get a, a pretty robust response that we were really happy with. Um, and, and from that response, uh, select this, this group of 33 projects that are all expected to come online uh, really between now and, and 2022. And, and every consortium member is gonna share a very small slice of each one of those projects. And it provides a really nice diversity benefit to Bowdoin and to the other members, because if any one of those projects doesn't move forward for some reason, maybe uh, they're unable to get through permitting or there's an interconnection issue, uh, they lose just one out of 33 projects. Uh, and hopefully the, the majority of them are able to move forward and, and generate the environmental and economic benefits that we'd expect. Um, and then there's a, a flip sort of diversity benefit for the projects themselves in that instead of uh, one project just signing a, a contract with, let's say, the city of Portland, they're signing a contract with the city of Portland, Bowdoin College, the University of Maine, L.L. Bean. And if anything uh, during that project's life or the 20 year term of these agreements, if anything was to, to happen to uh, Bowdoin or the city of Portland or L.L. Bean, uh, there are all these other participants who could uh, step in and, and sort of fill those shoes, so to speak. So there's a, a nice win-win benefit there by using this consortium approach. Uh, I would say the only downside was it resulted in uh, the execution of over, I think, 600 uh, agreements and contracts to <laughs> negotiate between all these different projects and all these different, uh, we call them off-takers, but all these different consortium members who are participating in, in buying a slice of each project. So uh, that was uh, quite the hurdle and, and all of that uh, was really happening this past spring and summer uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and uh, most people were signing these contracts and scanning them from, from home offices or uh, remote work environments. And so there, there was a lot of coordination involved, but um, uh, we think it was worth it in the end. We'll hear more from Matt later on in the episode. We now enter part two, where we move from energy consulting to product development. Marie and I spoke with people from Soul Systems, the Washington DC-based company leading the way on Bowdoin's solar installation on the former Naval Air Base. We'll talk with Anna Nukas, Jill Rathke, and Rennie Friedman. 
They're part of the Soul Systems team that has worked closely with the Bowdoin administration in financing and planning for the solar array at the Navy Air Base. They'll talk about Soul Systems' business model, walk through how the project got to where it is, and touch on some considerations involved in the process. We'll also talk about their vision for Maine's energy future, and because Anna and Jill are also lovely Bowdoin grads, a bit about their Bowdoin experience. Do you guys want to maybe just tell us about Soul Systems and generally like the role that Soul Systems has played in, in the Bowdoin Solar Project? You know, if Anna, you want to start? Sure. Overall, or like to, I guess, start with a background on Soul Systems. Um, Soul as a company has been around since 2008. We are, have always kind of served as a financing company. Um, so we started off as an SREC aggregator, um, doing primarily that when in states on the East Coast and have now evolved into essentially, you know, one of the nation's largest and most successful solar developers and financiers. Um, so it's been a long evolution uh, and a lot of changes over those 12 years, but have ultimately gotten us to this point where I think, you know, Soul Systems has kind of always wanted to be, which is, you know, leading in the development and financing space uh, of solar projects across the country. That also includes, you know, essentially providing services from the origination of a project through the development, financing it, and then the long-term ownership and asset management. So, Within Soul Systems as a whole, we provide those development and financing services for various types of projects. Now where Jill and Rennie and myself come into play is the commercial and uh, like small utility scale projects across the US um, and mainly focused on what we call on-site solar projects. So serving a customer, um, serving their load directly on-site uh, and the part of the company that we're involved in is called Soul Customer Solutions. Um, and that is a joint venture between Soul Systems and Capital Dynamics, um, who's one of the largest renewable energy asset owners in the country. So that joint venture has allowed for us to provide that full scope of services that I was talking about. So like origination through to financing and asset management, um, but with our own fund and with our own capital um, through Capital Dynamics. So they provide the development and you know, investment capital for our projects to own them long-term. I will stop there. Jill and Rennie, do you guys have anything to add to that? I think that was a really good overview. The one thing I might add is kind of that you know, I think what is nice about Soul Systems is that we can really be like a turnkey way for, you know, different customers like Bowdoin College to be able to bring online a solar project. There's so many different companies and pieces that will get involved at one point or another throughout the process of the project that it can be a little bit daunting and complicated if, if you haven't done it multiple times. But what's nice is that with Soul Systems, you know, we're the the one company that can kind of do it all you know we will engineer the project we will get all the permits we will hire the contractors we'll oversee them and i mentioned that um our division within seoul uh is a joint venture so capital Dy dynamics who owns part of our company is the long-term owner of the project we do the asset management for them so really it's kind of an all-in-one shop 
you know, so it, it helps simplify that, uh, which is really nice for, for the customers. But I think it also adds some, some more certainty to the process also. You know, there's unfortunately a number of projects and, and not just solar, but any really project out there, but that might die on the vine at some point in the project. And sometimes that happens because one company does what they're really good at and they kind of get to the end of what they're good at. And they have to find another company to take it to the next step. But it's all we can kind of do all of that. I'd love to ask a little bit about the start of a project. Who really initiates the project? Is it Soul System or a, a client like the college or? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And I think um, this project with Bowdoin is uh, an interesting example of just one of the various ways that it can happen. I mean, traditionally, the way we're originating projects at Soul is that we do our research to figure out which markets we want to operate in, which markets we can provide, um, have a competitive advantage, provide a value proposition to the customer, and then uh, take that research and narrow it down to the specific type of customer that um, we want to reach out to. All of this is basically leading to the fact that Soul is hunting for customers that we are going to then reach out to and ideally get some sort of connection, you know, with them, establish a relationship and present them with a proposal. There's a lot of that background research that, you know, Jill is super involved in uh, to sort of lead us to the right customer that we think is going to ultimately say yes and be interested in a project for a variety of different reasons. But our primary primary source of like lead generation or origination is through projects that, you know, we're generating on our own um, and then reaching out to the customer. With Bowdoin, uh, the other way that we get brought into projects is through RFPs or requests for proposals. Uh, and that was the situation with, uh, with this one. Competitive Energy Services is an awesome company based in Maine that has just done a tremendous amount for the Maine solar market, educating customers over the last, you know, five, maybe even 10 years, um, you know, getting them up to speed on the offerings. And so they were the ones that, that put out the RFP for this project. Jill is actually the one who leads our RFP responses and putting everything together. So Jill, I don't know if you have anything else to add to, to that. No, I was just going to say that a lot of customers prefer to do that because then they have someone to like help them evaluate bids and like decide what's the best offer for them. In Maine, it's the different contract structures and options. There's not that many. It's like kind of just one general offering, but sometimes in some states, there's like a million things you could do with a piece of land. And so it's kind of overwhelming. So just kind of following the timeline here, how did the increase in allowable net metering to five megawatts in Maine impact uh, you guys? I think it was maybe 500 kilowatts before. Just for clarification, uh, it was actually 660 kilowatts which is a tenth of the size and kind of on like the very smallest end of anything that we would want to build or that we could like even offer savings to a customer with. So being able to build much larger projects means that we can then sell more electricity people, but also offer like lower rates for that, um, just based on like, you know, larger projects having so many economies of scale. And so Jill said that when the 2019 policy changes came along, Groups interested in solar issued a bunch of requests for proposals, or RFPs. 
competitive energy services had been waiting for some positive change to happen and then released RFPs on behalf of all of their customers in Maine. In a so it's crazy for us because we were just like trying to go as quickly as we could, but really exciting. But then like since then things have slowed down a lot because most people are ready and poised for the changes to happen and now have acted on the first project they were waiting for. So the, the solar RFP land rush has somewhat died down. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And we um so I think we submitted the RFP in the fall, like September, October or so, and then, um, or submitted in October. And then we had responded to probably three or four of CES's RFPs at that point. We had scheduled uh, a meeting for a shortlist conversation, which meant, you know, we were one of the top three customers um, for one of their other RFPs. Uh, and then Matt called, either Jill or I at some point and was like, hey, you're gonna be up here. Can you come by Bowdoin and do a meeting the next day? Like, can you do these meetings back to back? Like it was that close that these yeah. RFPs were being you know, submitted and reviewed and stuff, um, which was awesome for us, for Jill and I to, to have an extra day and, and spend that at Bowdoin together, which was really <laughs> cool. Um, but it just all happened at, at once. We were busy preparing those proposals. I can only imagine what, what Matt and Andy's uh, life was like reviewing all those proposals too. But Why do you think Bowdoin went for, for Seoul's proposal? Like, can you talk about sort of what advantages you think you had and kind of how that continued past the RFP stage? Go ahead, Jill. Oh, well, I was just going to say a lot of times it does come down to price for these big projects because the competitors we were shortlisted against all have like built a lot of big ground mounted projects in New England and had a really experienced team. And I think it like did mean a lot to Bowdoin that Anna and I had both gone to Bowdoin uh, and to CES. I think another focus at Seoul has been to really make sure that we're engaging with communities as we're building projects. And so I hope that that's part of the reason why they were excited about our proposal. Uh, and Renny leads a lot of that, but it's a lot of like uh, outreach, there's the whole like not in my backyard NIMBY issue with a lot of renewable energy projects where people push back uh, when you're trying to get permits. So um, that sort of approach is important, but then also trying to like set up scholarships within the Brunswick community and, you know, include internships for voting students and things like that are definitely um, longer, longer standing impacts than just building the physical project. And we included those and talked about those um, up front with the college. And I think one of our, sometimes one of our disadvantages can be that we're from a company that's based in Washington, D.C. You know, we're not local to Maine. Um, you know, there is usually a lot of emphasis put on that depending on the customer. Um, but I do think what Rennie's team does a really good job of is for the development of our projects, establishing those local connections with you know, environmental firms or engineering firms that that have been in Maine for a really long time and and understand, you know, how the various state agencies operate with approvals or, you know, various processes for, you know, what's going to fly with this town when it comes to getting a site plan approval. And so I I think I, I would I would like to think that that was part of it as well, that even though we're a company coming in from the outside, you know, yes, Jill and I have a personal connection to Bowdoin, but we also, you know, just within Seoul uh, overall, like to create 
um, still a local team to ensure success uh, for these projects. So Rennie, who are some of the actors who you were most engaging with? So I guess we'll start with the college. So when we were awarded the project, which Anna and Jill, I think was late last year, I don't know if it was November, December kind of timeframe. So since then, our main points of contact have been uh, Catherine Ferdinand, Keisha Payton, and John uh, Simino at the, at, at the college. Um, they've been great to uh, work with. One of the interesting things working with a bunch of different customers um, between colleges and universities, wastewater treatment plants, Fortune 500 companies is that you're, you're able to tell pretty quickly which customers are really engaged. And by that, I mean, which ones really want the project. They, they really want this. They really want to see it happen. Versus, you know, some customers are more like, yeah, this is something that we're doing, but I have 20 other priorities going on. Um, and unfortunately, the solar project doesn't crack the top 20. Bowden has been the exact opposite. They've been super great to work with. Super, uh, you know, we ask questions, we get answers super quickly. You know, we need some things to be done. You know, they've been great. They'll reach out to the town or the fire department or, or whomever try to help us out. So, so they've been a really great partner. Um, and, and those three folks have been our main points of contact there. But then, you know, to, to Anna's point about, you know, needing to have local partners also. Uh, apologies for the background noise. My dog just got back from a walk and is quite thirsty. So we use, um, for the Bowdoin Project and for a number of our other projects in the region, we use a firm called TRC, and they're our lead civil and uh, environmental consultant on the project. So they have local offices, uh, and as Anna mentioned, they're very familiar with um, how the state policies work in terms of, we do a lot of due diligence on the site, surveys, environmental investigations, geotechnical reports. There's a number of state and local agencies that we need to coordinate with because, you know, at the end of the day, we are taking 20 acres or so of land and we're going to be impacting it. We're going to be putting a solar project on it. And, you know, while solar is great, it, it doesn't mean that there's no, no impacts to, to the um, environment. You know, one, because of state, you know, and local policy, we have to coordinate with these agencies. But two, I think in addition to that, it's the right thing to do. Um, we want to do the right thing. You know, we don't want to come in and just clear out every single tree possible and clear those trees that aren't part of our project because they're going to produce some shade and say that we don't care about what kind of habitats out there. We don't care. We're going to tear it all up. There are some places, Maine is not one of them. There are some places where you can kind of do that. You can kind of have that approach, but, but we don't want to do that. You know, so we use TRC. Um, they're part of our project team. Uh, they do an awesome job at, at all that type of stuff. Uh, but then there's a lot of other stakeholders involved as well. So CMP, Central Maine Power, they are the utility company that we ultimately tie into their grid. Um, our project will feed power directly into their grid. And there's a whole interconnection process that we have to go through with them where we submit an application and we tell them, we're going to put a project here. It's going to be this big. We're going to have this type of um, equipment on the site. And they run an, an analysis on their end to say, okay, how's that going to interact with what our lines look like, like in that area? Are there other projects that could interact with what they're doing? So CMP is the utilities is also a, a major, major player here. Um, no solar project can move forward without having an, an interconnection agreement in place with, in this case, CMP. And it sounds like all of those relations take a lot of time to develop, have those conversations, get back to people, run analyses and all that. <laughs> Everything takes, takes time. And just depending on where you are and who you're working with, those timeframes can vary 
greatly. CMP has been really, really good to work with also. We submitted our interconnection application, I think February of this year, and we had an, an uh, executed interconnection agreement, I think early fall, so September-ish, August, something like that. So, uh, you know, roughly a six or so month time frame. There's some projects we have in some other areas where that takes two to four years. And, you know, while that's going on, so we're processing that, we're also, again, doing surveys on site, doing uh, environmental investigations on site. What kind of plant species are out there? What kind of wildlife is out there? Um, are there wetlands on the site? We're doing a geotechnical investigation. What does the soils look like? Um, you know, we're going to be driving thousands of these tiny piles to support the system. Do the piles have to be six feet deep, eight feet deep, 10 feet deep? Are they going to hit rock? While we're going through the interconnection process, we're doing all these other parts of the project also. Um, that's our preferred approach is to kind of layer those steps on top of each other so you can do them at the same time. If, if you were to wait to get fully through one step before you start the next, it would really expand that timeline quite a bit. So just to go back to like the TRC bit, when, when Bowdoin came to you with, or when you guys met each other, let's say, um, with the solar project, did, did Bowdoin already have a sense of like, we want to have this project on, on the Navy Air Base? And was the previous solar project um, like useful in terms of getting that information? I don't, I honestly think the array actually hasn't really been it hasn't really helped that much in terms of Kubernetes process and also hasn't hurt that much. It's more just like another thing nearby. Um, it's actually interconnected behind the meter, which is like, it means that there's literally a wire that goes from that array to buildings on Odin's campus, which is really far, it's like board underground because that was the structure before the 2019 um, legislative change. And so they really started to incentivize people interconnecting in front of the meter. So as Brenny said, just putting all the electricity onto the CMP grid and then actually selling like credits that represent that power and having those uh, decreased potency utility bills. So because of, the, of that difference electrically, there's actually not a huge uh, impact from that array on our analysis. There was a lot of wetlands on the site um, and it's a huge site with 20 acres of land we did a site visit, but like obviously we didn't, you know, I was there for an hour, so we didn't like walk the whole every single acre. So it was helpful to have that as like a um, starting point and like a reference point. And we ended up structuring our layout for the solar array uh, to be kind of an odd shape and avoiding a lot of places on the map that may look good from like a Google satellite view, but just wouldn't have been available because of like endangered species habitat, wetlands, topography. Mm -hmm. Um, even like being too close to residents, we wanted to have like some trees uh, hiding the array from the nearby residents' backyards. So it's crazy to me that the legislation difference between pre twenty nineteen and post twenty nineteen matters a whole lot in terms of even the electoral connections and how the whole array is set up and what benefits Bowdoin gets. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I think that maybe why Bowdoin hadn't done. I was at Bowdoin. Uh, back, you know, a couple years ago and talked to Keisha and Bethany all the time about how, you know, it's frustrating to have like a couple small arrays way out in the woods and like something on the ice rink, but why don't we have something on campus or like more visible? And I, it may have just been because everyone was expecting there to be more positive options in the upcoming years because Bowdoin's saving way more money with the array that we're building than they would 
um, with any of the options we had before 2019. Now it's just an economic decision, even with all the positive of PD benefits. Yeah, something too to add on about you know how we ended up with this the final site that we did. Um, I think even when we were awarded the project, and Jill and Anna, please correct me if I'm wrong, but we had a couple of different options out there for different parts of the um, the former um, base that Bowden owned. Um, we could put solar on different parts of that site, and they all had pros and cons. You know, some what as an example, what what we have now is called a fixed tilt system, meaning the panels face south and they always face south; they don't move. Um, you can also do a a system that it's called a single access tracker and it tracks the sun throughout the day so the panels face east in the morning and then as the sun you know goes across the sky they they, they rotate uh, the benefit to a single access tracker is because it tracks the sun uh, it produces more power per panel than a fixed tilt system does the downside is um, it takes up more space so all of these factors kind of play into each other of okay if we use this area we could go with a single access tracker so we could get more power output, but it takes up more space, meaning we'd have to clear more trees. Um, there's more of you know, other um, environmental impacts. Trackers have to be, the, the, the engineering is a little more challenging. Um, they have to be like in so many uh, feet long and you really have little flexibility on that where fixed tilt, it's almost like a building block and you can kind of put it wherever you can. Trackers have to be nice, long, straight rows. And then, you know, as Jill mentioned, we want to be respectful of the people that live there. Um, so if you have a tracker and we're on the east of them and it's late in the afternoon, that might face west. And there's not a tremendous amount of glare, um, but that's always something that comes up. And, you know, we, we don't want to be right next to the neighbors, but then the compounding part of that is, but that's where the utility poles are. The utility poles aren't in the middle of this base. Um, they're where the, the load is, they're where the people live. So we need to be close enough that we can tie into their system. So there's all these types of factors that kind of play into each other. And it was a very uh, group effort with uh, Seoul and CES and Bowdoin to really come up with what is the best overall project um, for the college. And all these factors come into play. And of course, price is, 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 is always there, um, but environmental impacts, impacts to, to neighbors, preserving land for maybe other uses, things like that. So it's this whole big smorgasbord of factors. Um, and what was great about this process too is really everyone came to the table. We were able to have open and honest conversations about, yeah, this layout looks better, but it's gonna cost us a little bit more to build it. And here's why, or this system is a little bit smaller, but it's single access tracker so it can produce more power. And through those, you know, really open and honest conversations, we were able to come up with a current plan that um, that we're going forward with. Out of curiosity, does do the trackers also involve any like maintenance or is that all like pretty much entirely automated at this point? So it, it is automated. Um, they'll do it on their own and you can like set it up, but they, they do involve extra maintenance, extra maintenance than the, than the fixed tilt systems. Mm -hmm. and, and all that's kind of built into our models. You know, we're looking at how long, how much is it going to cost to own and operate the system long-term, it costs more for a single access tracker than a fixed tilt. But again, it produces more power, so it, it helps offset that. So what's the what's the state of the, the project at this point? Sounds like you have determined like siting and the type of solar that you're going to be using. Where where does it stand? Oh, it's built. You haven't seen it? <laughs> you haven't been out there to see it? 
<laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so maybe the brief history is, at least from Soul's involvement, you know, we were awarded the project in, you know, towards the very end of 2019, and there was a lot of work that went into getting to that point. But now we are through the interconnection process, meaning, you know, we CMP has done all their analysis. They've come out and said, okay, here's the report. Everything looks good. CMP is going to have to do some upgrades and we pay them for that. So that's all been squared away. The work hasn't physically been done, but all of the uh, analysis leading up to it has been done. That's always a key component and a key risk on any solar project. So to get through that hurdle is great. We've done all of our site investigation work. So we've done you know, a number of surveys, geotechnical wetland investigations. Um, we've done all the coordination with the state agencies. So um, Inland Fish and Wildlife is one of them. There's a number of others that are just not coming to me right now, but coordinate with all that to make sure that you know, we flag that there are some real plant species on site, but we've been able to design the system to not impact those. Mm -hmm. uh, we've noticed that there are some small pockets of wetlands on site. We've been able to design the system to not impact those. Um, so that work just takes a lot of time. And then one of the other key components that we haven't talked about yet is, even though it's on college land, the, the town has to approve a site plan. So we did um, kind of like a concept plan application with, with the town. Uh, we got that approved probably about a month, month and a half ago, and we're getting ready to file our final site plan with them um, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and that process will likely take a couple of months to go through uh, the different folks at the town who review and comment on the plan, make sure that we're following all the applicable codes and, you know, rules and regulations that we have to, but also, you know, they know the area very, very well, you know, things that might not be written in a code that they know about, you know, they'll make sure to comment on that. And then, you know, we're hopeful to get our final approval uh, within the next couple of months there. And then once we do that, we will close financing and order materials and begin to build. Woohoo! <laughs> well, thinking a little bit about the um, structure and the benefits of the project, for some of our listeners who might be a little less familiar with what RECs and carbon offset credits are and all that, could, you, could someone who's more familiar with talking about that just kind of give us a brief overview of what the benefits and credits to the college look like from this project. Okay, I'll give a quick explanation. But um, <laughs> there's a lot of options and I think there's a big, there's like this perception that renewable energy credits, which people often call RECs, are sort of like a way to like cheat the system, which I think is a really unfair perception of them because um, they are directly uh, allowing more solar projects to be built because those add revenue streams to the project, whoever is generating the electricity from a renewable resource. So in some regions without any incentives, the cost to sell the electricity on its own is too high for it to be a good deal to sell the electricity to anybody. They're maybe already paying a lot cheaper uh, rates so no one's ever gonna build any solar in that situation for an economic reason. So when there's a renewable energy credit that's simultaneously generated, it's more of like a carbon accounting type thing. If there's no like physical, there's not even like a piece of paper or anything you get, but every megawatt hour of electricity you generate, you get a renewable energy credit as well. And you can either choose to retire those, which if you're doing carbon accounting um, means that you're taking full credit for that and therefore could use that to offset some other electricity that you generated from a non-renewable source. 
or if you're more concerned with money and less concerned with like your carbon reporting, which most people are, um, other than like these Fortune 500 companies or universities, then you can sell the, you can purchase the electricity and use it, but then you can sell the renewable energy credit to someone who's willing to pay some amount for it. And then there, that way you can make the project work in a situation where selling the electricity alone wasn't enough. So I think it's really important um, to set up those markets and the RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard, is sort of like the keyword to look out for when you're trying to see where a project would generate RECs. The renewable energy credits are valuable that are generated and there's a lot of them. And we talked with Bowdoin about what they wanted to do with them during the RFP stage. Our team actually has, at Seoul, we have a different team that trades RECs, especially SRECs, which are like specific solar renewable energy credits. Um, and so they create it almost like a stock market where they will buy and sell at times that they think they can make money, basically. So we offered to help Odin monetize the recs they have and try to sell them for like the best value through our trading desk. But Odin was more interested in retiring the recs themselves. Probably there's a lot of pressure on Odin to have recs that they're, they can see the source of, because I know Odin right now is purchasing recs, but directs from a wind farm in Texas are really inexpensive. It might be like a dollar to buy one megawatt hour of rec there. Mm -hmm. And um, in markets where there's a really high goal and it's very hard to build solar, DC, Washington DC has a, has a RPS for example, something it might be like 300 or $400 for rec. So if someone was thinking about, oh, I wanna buy recs that are really having like an impact on my local community, they would probably look to buy them in the nearby area, um, but from a carbon accounting sense, if you can buy them anywhere. So Odin's gonna probably retire the recs or maybe maybe look to like sell these recs and buy cheaper ones so that they can still have recs but make extra money on them, which mm -hmm. is a strategy. Kind of just depends what your goals are. And recs are only like applicable if it's going into the like public grid, right? You actually, you, if you use all the electricity on site, if you had a small system on your rooftop and it never got exported, you actually can generate RECs as well. So it's just, it's more usually about the physical location of the project, like it's in the state of Maine, mm -hmm. than it's about, it's a CMP REC. The, the RECs are really how the state policy, one of the ways that the state policy helps to um, to bring more solar online and full disclosure i'm not the expert on this so this is my like third grade way to explain it which makes sense to me <laughs> um, but so the state policy they set mandates in where um, power producing companies operate in the state produce power in the state have to meet certain targets by certain dates certain percentage of their power production needs to come from renewable energy sources and within that, often there's a solar carve out. So a certain percentage of that has to come from solar. So they can meet it a couple of different ways. They can either develop or own solar assets. Um, they can own solar farms, or they can buy these RECs or these SRECs, if it's solar, solar renewable energy credit from uh, entities that own these systems that are not power companies. And by owning their own assets and by buying these RECs, they have to meet that target. If they don't meet that target, then they have to pay a penalty to, I don't know, a, a state entity or a state board. And the value of that rec is set by the value of what that penalty payment is. 
Mm. So, you know, just like a lot of other facets, um, they're going to do what makes the most sense from a, from a financial standpoint. So if the, if the value of that penalty is $500, the recs are going to be worth just less than that, $475, <laughs> right? So that that way um, it makes sense and it helps to um, incentivize solar. So that's, that's a major way that the state policy can, can help by increasing those renewable energy targets and by increasing the solar carve out, um, it helps to keep the REC and the SREC markets active, which helps these projects work from a financial standpoint. From our background research, we've uh, noticed that Maine's RPS standards are set at, I believe, 80% um, by 2030 and 100% by 2050, which seems in our estimate, a really aggressive target. Is that what you all are feeling too? I think it's right on track. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's it certainly for, for a state that's essentially just launching full scale programs, well, especially for solar, um, it's, it definitely does feel aggressive. That said, there are other renewable sources, you know, within Maine that will be able to provide significant scale um, to allow for the state to be able to, you know, achieve those targets faster than with just solar, which I think is definitely important to, to keep in mind when we're thinking about these, these RPSs. It's easy to, easy to assume it's, you know, just wind and solar, but there are other types of resources as, as well that provide significant scale. Uh, we hope that solar is a huge component of that, um, and I think that will happen, like we're seeing with the current program. But I, I guess the short answer is it, it may feel aggressive, but I think it's necessary. So I didn't mean to sound skeptical. I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. forward, but it is a long way to go. It is. It is. It definitely is. Which is, I mean, exciting to see in that you know, Maine wasn't a state that was on our radar prior to this, right? Um, and now, now we're operating there, you know, there are tens, if not, you know, hundreds of companies that are probably coming to the state now that, you know, wouldn't have been there otherwise. So uh, it's, it's exciting to see that momentum and the reaction from the private sector, you know, when something like that happens. Fun fact, I am currently interning for a tidal energy company. So some of the stuff we're talking about is um, really interesting because I'm doing some of the same things, but just like in water. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Definitely not going to be quite the scale of solar in by 2030, but. <laughs> so when is this, uh, when is Bowdoin's installation expected to come online and start producing power to the grid? So right now the goal is to bring it on um, by the end of next by the end of next year. Um, we're we're hoping to be able to beat that date, uh, but that's currently what our target is. Could you talk about like the sort of construction side of it? You mentioned some of the um, people you're working with to um, you know like permit and prepare for the project. It's a great question. So we ultimately will hire um, another firm to physically build the project itself. We're having some like preliminary conversations with a number of firms now, and probably in the next one to two months, we'll really firm everything up and we'll put together a full RFP package on our end and issue an RFP to these contracting firms, just like Bowdoin did um, at the onset of the solar project. Again, what's nice for Bowdoin is that we handle all, all of that on, on our end. We'll obviously let them know who we're going to choose and, and everything like that, but we do all the legwork um, that 
that goes into that and is associated with that. So probably in about, um, I'd say about two months or so, so either very end of this year or very beginning of next year, we'll kind of finalize our package, um, our RFP package. We'll send that out to a number of qualified firms and work with them you know, to, to get their bids back, make sure pricing looks good. And, and again, price is a major factor for us, but it's definitely not the only factor. We want to produce a project that is quality work that's going to provide value that everyone can be can be proud of. So, you know, we want to make sure that that we're working with firms that that value that also. What's the expected like energy generation? Do you have a sense of what it's like in general relative to other solar systems projects? One interesting thing is that the snow like has a big impact. So most of our projects are in states either with solar incentives, which like Massachusetts is and New York are some of the biggest leaders and they aren't necessarily big solar states because they have high productions per panel. It's because of all these incentives. So we're building projects in Nebraska where uh, it's probably like at least a third more electricity per panel than at Bowdoin. Um, but the interesting thing about the snow is that as the tracker moves, like often the snow will fall off there's not really a need for snow cleaning if we do fix silt because it'll usually melt a little bit and then just slide off. It's really just about like where the sun is in the sky. And so they actually produce a lot during the summer because they're so north. Um, but it's really just winter where the production goes down a lot because of all the snows. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know. I feel like energy is so in some ways like still so mysterious to me, um, but it's like very just like interesting to hear about very simple like logistical things that will like impact energy generation <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> i for the longest time had an issue with like these front of the meter systems it's like well the electrons are being produced in one spot who kn who knows where it's going to end up but you're <laughs> still going to pay us for it like you're gonna rely on the fact that somehow it's going to get to you and yeah it's it's a uh, super interesting uh, to, to think about that. When you're looking ahead, this is for any of you, when you're looking ahead at Maine's energy future, what are you thinking about? Um, I'm excited to see how they incentivize batteries because Massachusetts has sort of been like a leader for a lot of New England. And so they started with just incentivizing solar. And then they just said like, we'll give you a bunch of money if you just install the battery and we don't really care what you do with it all, which is, fine but like not be the best use of um, money uh, and now they just announced that they're doing this clean peak standard basically they're saying there's the most electricity usage at you know like summer evenings so if you produce electricity at that time and shift whatever renewable electricity at that time then we'll pay you extra so i think that, that main will need to get more creative um going forward to make sure that they're not just generating renewables but also making sure to be generating the amount of times of high demand. I'm excited to see more on-site development happening, you know, more solar on rooftops, more carports, uh, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff that, you know, right now the program that's in Maine uh, doesn't necessarily incentivize those types of projects specifically. Um, and right now we're seeing, you know, a lot of sites being built kind of out in the middle of nowhere, wherever you can find land kind of thing. But that means that the generation is away from where the loads exist uh, and where we can make 
you know, ideally a greater impact is by serving the loads directly. And so I, I would love to see an energy future in Maine that includes a lot more of those on-site projects um, for, for places that can make it work um, while still having this other program that obviously exists for customers that don't have a huge rooftop or whatever, but still want to be purchasing solar. So completing that package, I guess, uh, is, is what I would be excited to see. That's it. I'm excited to see from a project development standpoint, how the state really um, adapts to and is able to really embrace and work with all this additional solar that's going to be coming online over the coming years. Um, something we run into is you see it in different states, states that have a more, um, a more established solar market, like uh, Massachusetts is a really good example where, you know, they've had a pretty robust solar incentive program in the state for a number of years. And because of that, there are different state policies in place and local policies that deal with the development of, of solar. Maine is more of a, a, a newer market. So some of the state agencies, some of the local jurisdictions are really just figuring out how to deal with solar. You know, it's not your typical real estate development where you're going to be putting down a parking lot and a building of some sort. Um, we're going to be installing solar, but there's still going to be uh, grass underneath. It's a habitat. It's an environment. So how do you deal with all that? And I think so far, Maine's done a really good job, and I'm excited to kind of see how they uh, how they manage that process and how it evolves. I think that part is is going to be huge to to seeing how the state can evolve and adapt and really accept all of the the energy that's being um the renewable energy that's being developed this may be a little cliche or, or i don't know what the right word is especially given that the election was was yesterday but i think you know we talked about all the things that that we're excited about but um you know the biggest challenge is you know, the political landscape, right? And how we can only achieve these goals if we have, you know, the right political landscape that we can work within. And Maine's really unique in that sense uh, in terms of its political uh, history, I guess, um, how it's evolved and changed over time. It's definitely not a coincidence that a program like this started within the first year of Janet Mills being elected. Um, and so she has done an incredible job, you know, for our industry and really advancing renewable energy. And so, you know, talking about achieving those aggressive goals of 80% by 2030, you know, we're, we're able to do that if we continue to see, you know, the, the legislation and, you know, political support to achieving that. Yeah, you've already illustrated how even just with this Bowdoin project, the, the two are very, the existing one and the one coming online hinge completely on political will and political laws. And I, I completely agree. It looks like going forward, this whole industry is dependent in a way on what happens in Augusta. Finally, we asked everyone to reflect about their careers in the solar field. Anna, Jill, and Matt are all Bowdoin graduates, and we wanted to hear about their paths into the industry. Were you thinking about uh, renewable energy or solar at all while you were in college? Or has this become a um, unexpected turn of events for you? It's hard that Anna can go back, but I definitely was. Um, and I actually voted at work success, got my job at school definitely through Anna, just like possible networking calls, which like me and Marie have also done. And like I've done with other people that are older and younger than me. So um, good network. But um, I definitely wanted to work 
in solar and worked at the Solar Trade Association, the national one, which is also in DC as an intern in college, um, which was really cool and like a way to hear about what different types of solar companies there are. Like if you work for the construction company or the big financing group or someone like us who's kind of developing in between. And so that was great. Um, and I, I, we took a really cool lab uh, as an environmental studies major where it was like only one day, but we used GIS to analyze which roofs that put in campus could be best for solar. Super simple in here, but not that far off <laughs> um, in terms of like thinking about is there trees nearby and what the um, roof tilt is. So that was cool to see like a more technical application of like what people have but um, definitely didn't learn a lot about the business side of renewable energy until I started working at school and started researching different sort of companies that I wanted to work at. And I have done that same GIS lab that you're describing, Bill. <laughs> I am jealous because that didn't exist uh, when I was at Bowdoin, not to be that like back in my day person, <laughs> but I had always had sustainability and trying to find a way to combat climate change um, in you know the back of my mind. Uh, I, I grew up around it and in a family that was was kind of all about it. Um, when I got to Bowdoin, I wanted it to be a part of uh, my studies, but I didn't know exactly how or exactly you know what I was going to do ultimately for a career to combat climate change. I think the so I didn't necessarily go through Bowdoin with a specific focus on renewable energy um, or on solar, um, but I will say that it, I had enough classes and enough exposure at Bowdoin um, to, I think, give me what I needed post-college to guide me in that direction. You know, one of the classes that, that I remember uh, the most and had the greatest impact uh, on me was uh, through uh, DeWitt John. Uh, he may not, he may have retired by the time uh, you guys had had gotten there. And I, I think he passed away recently, unfortunately, but um, he had a huge impact on my career and ultimately, you know, what I uh, decided to do and um, through his classes. And I learned from him what a renewable energy credit was. And like, it was mind boggling to me. It was just so crazy that that uh, type of financial instrument existed. So I thought, I was a government and environmental studies major at Bowdoin. I eventually then used that to get to the Hill um, in Washington, DC, where I interned for Senator Snow. Thought policy was the way I was going to make an impact and quickly learned that things happen faster in the private sector. And so then found my way, you know, to, to Soul Systems through that. And I've been working for Soul for, for almost 10 years now since I graduated. So yeah, renewable energy definitely had, uh, it was on my mind at Bowdoin, but I think it was, you know, because of being in DC and my experience there that ultimately got me to Soul Systems um, and focusing more on it to make a bigger impact. Then we turned to Matt to hear about his take on the energy field. We'd also love to just ask you, what does sustainability, this concept of sustainability mean to you? You know, I, I think, Originally, and this maybe plays a little bit into sort of the evolution um, of the sustainability conversation since my time at Bowdoin and, and now, but um, from my perspective, <clears throat> you, you know, I, I used to be very focused on um, 
reducing your impact by consuming less, you know, doing doing more with less, and really trying to live within a world of finite resources. And I don't want to diminish any of that. I think that's all still really important, uh, especially uh, initiatives and things like efficiency, um, incentives for for efficient policies, ways to to do more with less, and the way that technology can enable that uh, are are big parts of the overall um, solution to, to our, our carbon problem. But uh, I think you know the more time I've spent in 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 the quote real world, you you realize you know people really like electricity <laughs> and it's important to enable that enable people to use the electricity that they need to use or want to use and make that affordable for everyone and uh you know it's it's really important to the economy it's really important to uh, people's livelihoods and i think what i'm encouraged by is that in the last few years you're really beginning to see a path towards a future economy where renewable resources can allow communities and, and people and businesses to consume uh, potentially as, as much as they want, um, you know, within reason, uh, without, um, you know, taking drastic measures to reduce consumption. That, that we've, we've seen renewable technologies decline in cost, and we've seen policies that really work in enabling those technologies to access the grid in a way that, you know, sort of paves the way for a future where we electrify the transportation sector, uh, we electrify the heating sector, and our existing electricity emissions continue to fall uh, because of the, the adoption of these renewable resources. And it's going to take additional technologies. It's going to take a lot of effort to get there, a lot of investment, uh, a lot of upfront uh, capital, both economic capital and political capital. Uh, you know, I, I definitely think eventually we're going to need to see some sort of more universal action instead of uh, each individual state or local government taking their own approach. But, uh, you know, you're beginning to see the way that this could work, uh, that, that we could have a grid that is mostly, if not entirely, decarbonized and have that grid not only meet today's electricity needs, but also meet the future electricity needs in a world where we're all driving electric vehicles and in a world where uh, our heating sources are no longer burning natural gas or burning oil, but instead uh, using heat pumps and uh, geothermal systems uh, that are reliant on electricity to to move heat and move air and move water and and uh, create heat that way in a way that uh, will allow us to to rely less and less on natural gas or or fossil fuels at all and and it's really encouraging to see that possibility that that's something that at least when I graduated from from Bowdoin in 2013. Uh, you know, maybe wasn't apparent to me, but I, I think a lot of that, we, we've come a long way in that uh, seven years now into 2020 uh, that's uh, enabled us to, to sort of see that that pathway towards the future. Um, there's a long way to go, but yeah, I, I think it is the, the, the future is hopefully bright here. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I am a Bowdoin grad, uh, 2013. Um, shout out to the class of 2013. <laughs> <laughs> 
go you bears. Um, no, I, 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 when I was on campus, the big push, at least among students was uh, focused around uh, divestment, uh, which was really <laughs> contentious at the time. There was um, a, a lot of uh, argument about, about divestment. Um, there was definitely some animosity between students and, uh, you know, certain members of the administration surrounding divestment and, and, you know, trying to push Bowdoin to go further in divesting from fossil fuel uh, companies. You know, I, I think that divestment push was inspired by the likes of Bill McKibben and 350.org. Um, a lot of us on campus at the time were frustrated by uh, what we saw as inaction at the federal level to combat climate change. And uh, you know, this was a way to uh, try to make a difference, you know, at, at Bowdoin that could directly impact fossil fuel companies in the absence of any sort of carbon tax or um, other policy. But I think what we've seen since then, uh, which is really makes me a lot more optimistic, and I think in some ways a, a, a better solution is we've seen a lot more state and local action that have paved the way for a lot more progress, especially here in New England. And, and that's, you know, the actions we've, we're talking about here today that have enabled Bowdoin to uh, do these types of renewable projects, you know, have, have allowed Bowdoin to really push the boundaries and, and get to a whole new level of uh, renewables um, without needing uh, federal action. And I think that that transition and, and um, has has actually, I think, been partially in response to the Trump administration and the withdrawal from the um, Paris Climate Agreement. And I think it forced a lot of states and local governments to say, you know what, we're we're going to have to do something because we know the federal government isn't going to do something. And it's it's forced action in, I think, a lot of pretty powerful ways. You know, that's at least where I see things going and, and what I'm optimistic for. Yeah, well, here's hoping that the next 7, 10, 20 years are equally as bright. Planning for all of the solar projects we discussed in this episode are underway. The panels are projected to be installed starting in 2021, and we all look forward to witnessing the energy transition unfold even beyond that. For more information, please check out information from Bowdoin, CES, and Sol Systems, or read up on Maine's new solar policies online. Thanks to Matt, Anna, Jill, and Rennie at CES in Seoul. And as this is our last episode for the season, we also want to recognize Bethany Taylor and Keisha Payson at Bowdoin Sustainability. Thank you both for your hard work and guidance on complex issues around people and environments. See you next year for season four of Green Tea. Throughout the 2020-2021 academic year, we will be publishing episodes online at bowdoin.edu sustainability under the Green Tea tab. There, you can also find show notes and descriptions of past episodes. Green Tea features interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members with a focus on sustainability. Thanks for Thanks listening! For listening. <laughs>